Um, God, thanks so much for today, and thank you for um, just the way that you've been even working in my own life as I've been preparing this sermon for today. Uh, I pray that uh, my own experiences and the ways that you have shaped me and um, helped me see this text and, and um, understand this a little bit better, God, I pray that that understanding would um, uh, just go farther than myself, God, that uh, the people in this room would be able to uh, receive a little bit more of your goodness and your love and your mercy today. Amen. Okay, so I've been really wanting to test this theory, and I kind of want to try it with all of you. Is that okay? Yes? Okay, good, good. Um, So there is just kind of like a list of maybe like three or four rules that I feel like most people in the world have broken. Are you ready? So what I want you to do, only if you feel comfortable, these are not so serious, okay? I promise I'm not going to make you like share your deepest, darkest secrets. But um, if you have done this, if you feel comfortable, if you're like, this is maybe the first time here and you're like, this person seems crazy. Um, But if you feel comfortable, um, would you raise your hand when I put it up on the screen? Okay? Are you ready? Are we good? (laughs) You just said that. That was awesome. Okay, the first one. Okay, have you been at the grocery store and you're walking along and you have lots of groceries in, yep, yep, you have lots of them, but you get in the 15 or item less line even though you have way more. Okay, (laughs) perfect, okay, that's what I thought. That's why I always wait longer than I should when I'm in the 15 or item less line. Thank you, thank you. Okay, the second one, you're driving, okay, and it's... (laughs) This is awesome. You're driving and you are in a big rush and there's a lot of traffic and you're by yourself. Maybe you have your dog in the car, so you're like, there's a life in the car. So you pop in the carpool lane for just a few minutes. Okay, oh, so some of you are like, oh, do I raise my hand? Okay, there's less, there's less. I had a feeling this one would have less. Okay, now this one, this is like a rite of passage for all middle school, high school students. Okay. Have you toilet papered someone's home? Oh my gosh, all of you! It's like all of you! That's what I thought. Okay, okay, let's go here. This is another one that I feel like is a rite of passage for like all people, okay? In elementary, middle school, or high school, have you cut the cafeteria school line? Okay, less, good, wow, good job. See, I knew Living Spring, you would, sometimes you would you would be with me, and then sometimes it'd be like, oh, man, bunch of rebels. Okay, now I, I, I'm wondering, how many of you, just, I want you to guess. You can just yell at the number. How many of these do you think I've broken? Oh. <laughs> what? No, just wait. I'm serious. There maybe is like a time I've potentially forgotten possible but let me tell you so the toilet papering one literally I was in like high school and I was at a friend's house my dad can even attest to this I was there and they all decided to go toilet paper someone's house and I was like okay fine I'll do it I'm gonna be I'm gonna be cool I'm gonna be cool I'm gonna go I'm gonna go do it I get about halfway to the house I leave I walk back home by myself and I call my dad to have him come pick me up seriously that is I know you're like Rihanna is boring I didn't know how boring she was I know I know. 
I recognize it. It's embarrassing. I'm completely aware of it. Um, and so if you didn't know this about me, I'm actually a huge rule follower um, through and through. It's not something I t technically like about myself, but it's the truth. And in fact, this week, as a grown adult, okay, in a work meeting at, in college, like I work at a higher education institution, I got called a teacher's pet. This week, as a grown adult woman, I got called a teacher's pet. And I just laughed and I shook my head. I went, yep, always have been, always will be. <laughs> and so you may be asking, why um, are you telling me about how you're such a boring person? And truly, this is not because I'm like, think I'm like, I follow rules because I'm, I'm better than other people. It's because I just have this innate desire to follow rules. And I'll explain to you why in a little bit. It's totally selfish, I promise. Um, and the reason I'm telling you about why I'm such a big full rule follower is because we're actually going to be talking about this idea of mercy today. And mercy is the idea that a person would maybe give compassion to someone um, when it's within their power to punish them or discipline them for wrongdoing. So uh, I suppose that you could say that mercy is a potential consequence or byproduct of somebody breaking a rule and um, then not receiving punishment for those actions. So if that's the case, mercy is something that I think I've kind of unintentionally avoided most of my life. We are in a current series called The Upside Down, and we're taking a look at one of Jesus's most famous sermons. Um, it's the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are a series of blessed are or happy are statements that help us understand what the kingdom of God looks like, feels like, and who's there. We've talked about how the kingdom of God is filled with hopeless people, it's filled with people that mourn, it's filled with meek or gentle people, and it's filled with people that really seek after doing what is right or good and not going for a quick fix, like John talked about not eating a snack last week. And the reason this series is called Upside Down is because the blessed are statements uh, often feel opposite or upside down to maybe how um, our world or our culture works and what they value. And so today we're going to actually be looking at how mercy is in a lot of ways upside down. So I want to begin, I, I want to read the entire Beatitudes again, because Jonathan read them at the first part of the series, but we haven't read the whole thing together. And so I just kind of want us to hear them again, kind of how Jesus would have shared them. So we're going to do that now. You can look up at the screen. We're in Matthew 5. Sorry if it's a little small. I didn't realize how small it would be until I saw it on there right now. Um, but here we go. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or the hopeless, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. So to understand mercy... I want us to spend a little bit of time just jumping into how 
how would the biblical authors have understood mercy, right? Because when we hear the word, we may not know all the complexities of it. So we're going to start in the Old Testament. The Beatitudes, this piece of scripture, is located in the New Testament. But we're first going to jump into the Old Testament because it informs the New Testament, right? So we're going to look at two different um, translations of mercy. And they're the two most common. And the first is this word hesed. So hesed is essentially a word used to describe God's covenantal mercy. It's basically this unbreakable promise that God has made. Um, And so it's most oftentimes used in relation to Israel. So Israel is being rebellious. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. But instead of God punishing Israel, because of the covenant or the promise that God has made, he does not punish them he still reconciles them to himself. He forgives them for their wrongdoing. And so essentially, God is having mercy on Israel because he has promised that he would have mercy on Israel. And some of, some of this can maybe even look like you think about like a husband and wife. When they get married, they have this, this covenant that they make with one another, right? That they are not going to um, not forgive one another. So they will forgive one another in marriage. And so it's kind of like if you're in a fight, which I've never done with Jonathan before ever. But if you're in a fight and then you essentially choose to forgive them instead of hold over that fight or punish them with maybe the thing that they said that one time, hold it over their head. Instead, you would, you've promised that you will forgive, even though it may be hard in the moment, right? Or even days later. Uh, (laughs) The second kind, though, is my favorite, and it's this word that I do not know how to pronounce, so just roll with me on it, okay? It's rashamin, which its root is the word reshem, and guess what it literally means? It means womb. So it is the womb of God. It is God's compassionate mercy, the kind of mercy that is connected to this motherly, innate love that God has for humanity. And I just want to pause for a second because I think sometimes as a woman, right, I hear all the time, you know, Father, He, Father, He, but how powerful for the women in the room to know that mercy is deeply connected to this motherly, innate thing, the womb of God. It's powerful when we can recognize our image in the image of God. And so this is that tender or compassionate love that God has very much like a mother. And if if you are a mom or you've even just heard about this, there's this really amazing thing that actually happens to women when they have birth. And it's even also happens in the nursing stage. I'm sure some of you know about it, but it's this built into our chemistry is a a hormone that's released called oxytocin. And oxytocin is is dubbed as the cuddle or love hormone, which I think is just so cute, right? Um, And basically, women get a huge surge of this when they have their babies and also when they nurse their babies. Um, and this is the kind of thing that helps them love or, or take care of their child. What's really wild is that some, ty- some scientists are starting to study just women's ba- brain chemistry in general, and they believe that during pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, 
that women's brain chemistry actually began to change. Like the gray matter becomes more concentrated and activity in parts of the brain that increase empathy and social connection and also worry, so funny, um, that it actually increases for women, which is wild to think about. And so in their very composition, they begin to want to care for their child. It's beautiful, it's powerful. But I also want to take a moment to pause and say that I know that maybe for some of you, you were moms and you experienced something like postpartum depression and it was hard to feel those sorts of things. Or maybe you had a mom that didn't do all of these kinds of things. Maybe they didn't have that fierce protectiveness or that fierce loyalty or love that they would do anything. They would crawl over broken glass for you, right? And so a lot of times, once again, we talk about this, um, this idea of redeeming, you know, maybe our earthly fathers haven't been so great, and we have to have some healing in terms of our, our, our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And I would just want to say that maybe for some of you in the room, there could be some healing in terms of how your earthly mother has not maybe fulfilled all the things that you have hoped. Maybe they haven't been this, but to know that God is. God is the kind of, we, we sang about it, the kind of God that would chase you down, fight till you are found, leave the 99. You know, for, my, for a long time, my mom used to say, Rihanna, being a mother is literally like ripping your own heart out of your chest. It grows legs and arms and starts to walk around, and you can do nothing about it. You can't even keep it safe half the time. It's the most horrible, wonderful thing in the world. I don't know if any moms can relate. But I want us to think about how powerful this is, that this is the kind of mercy that God has for us, this, this compassion, and that it's central to the way that, that he thinks about us, he, he acts towards us. It's, this, it's both this covenantal, this promised type of mercy, but also this compassionate kind of mercy. So you're probably wondering, okay, when are we going to jump to the New Testament, right? Um, well, the Greek word that's used in our blessed are statement today, the blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, is actually uh, translated, once again, I'm going to mess up how to say this, but it's Elamonas. Jonathan practiced with me like four times because he's in, he's in a Greek class right now, so he was able to tell me how to pronounce it, but I think I did it wrong. Elamonas. Elamonas. Okay, there we go. Did it. Um, <laughs> but this is directly related to the word compassion. So once again, fairly similar to uh, that uh, Rashem, right? That, that, that compassion of God. But it's also another word that is used to describe it is pity, which, oh God, does anyone hate that word? Does, isn't pity kind of a, it's kind of weird. I don't like it. I don't want someone to pity me, right? But when we take it in kind of relation of what, to the, the biblical story and what the Bible, biblical authors were trying to say, pity is this idea that there has maybe been an inequity or an injustice where someone is then in need. And when they are in need, someone sees it or notices it. So God's pity, God's mercy is a noticing of an injustice and noticing of a need. And God is not a distant God where he doesn't pay, he doesn't pay attention to our needs. He absolutely pays attention to our needs. And what's powerful is then he has mercy or compassion on us. You know, pity without compassion is kind of just saying, like, poor you. But, but God sees a need, sees an injustice, and then has compassion for us. It's kind of like a mother who 
hears her crying child and comforts the child until it stops crying. And so what I think this blessed are statement, right, the blessed are the merciful, is saying is that actually we are capable as people who live in the kingdom of God reality of being these kind of compassionate, merciful people where it's innate to how we respond. It's part of our brain chemistry that we would respond with mercy towards others. What's really cool is that I also did some research on fathers and levels of oxytocin. And what they found is that while the mother has this huge surge right when she has her child, um, that there's been many studies done where they believe that fathers' oxytocin levels reach to just the, the same as women's. It just takes a few days of them holding and bonding with their child. How beautiful, right? How neat that that's what that does, is that this idea that we are all capable of having that kind of compassion and that kind of mercy for others. But I think that oftentimes mercy is upside down. It's not always what our world values. And I want to give you some examples of, of why. So if I were to ask you this question, and you don't actually have to answer it out loud, okay? But if I were to ask you, you know, okay, so let's say someone commits a crime. I don't know what crime, but let's say they commit a crime. Do you believe they should be punished? And I want you to be honest in your head as you share about it. There's not a wrong or a right answer. I just want you to think about what's your gut reaction? Do you think they should be punished? I think some of us might say, no, they shouldn't. We're the, we're the like lenient type, the people that let everyone off the hook, right? It's like my husband and our dogs when they eat our entire house and he doesn't get mad at them for some reason, but I'm like so angry with them. Others, you might say, you know, it depends on the crime. It depends on how serious whether or not they should be punished or not. And then others of you, you might be like, absolutely always, there's never a case when somebody does something wrong that they shouldn't be punished for it. How are they supposed to learn from their mistakes, right? And then maybe some of you are like me, just a bunch of rule followers who have been operating in a system that tells me that if I'm a good girl and I don't break the rules, then at least I won't ever have to deal with the potential of punishment. I also think that probably some of us value justice, right? This idea that when something has been wronged, that there would be a, something right, right? That, that there is a debt that it has to be paid. And the only thing that I'm, I'm concerned about is I wonder if we are mistaking justice for punishment. I was listening to uh, an episode of NPR the other day, which is a public radio station, and a story caught my attention, mainly because I knew I was going to be preaching on this. And it's about this new program that some of Washington, D.C. Uh, prosecutors are doing with young people when they get um, on the wrong side of the law. They've launched a program that is called the Restorative Justice Program. And what it does is it connects these young people. It's it, typically not anything that um, was super egregious, but they connect these young people with uh, their, uh, their offenders um, in order to try, or the victim, in order to try to find a way to move forward. And if the program works, and if the, the, the offender actually does kind of comply and set face-to-face -face with their, their victim, they can actually leave with a cr clean criminal record, which is really powerful and really significant when we consider the fact that having a criminal record, especially as a child, could literally impact their entire lives for potentially doing something that maybe even some of us in the room have done that we would not define ourselves as criminals. 
The reality is that this work is merciful work, and yet it's wild to me that, that this is like a new and cutting-edge thing, right? It's, it's something that they're trying out, that, that um, they're really trying to push forward. It's new. It's not something that's common. I want us to take um, a look at one of the stories of the prophets. So uh, the prophets in biblical times were essentially people who spoke on behalf of God. And um, many of these prophets in biblical times had a super hard job. And it's because typically Israel was rebelling. And so they had to share some not so good news with them. And so I really think that, that, to- that term, uh, don't kill the messenger, was coined by prophets. <laughs> and so I want to jump into the story of specifically Micah, who was a minor prophet, which means that basically his book wasn't super big. Um, and the reason I want to is because he specifically talks about justice and mercy. It's kind of the major themes of, of, his, of this text. So in the first two sections of Micah, he shares warnings and accusations of the nation of Israel. Um, they have been in rebellion for 500 years. So not they didn't, they didn't just you know, get in the wrong grocery line. They've been doing things wrong for 500 years, been breaking a lot of rules. And he actually points out some of these really serious things that they've been doing, and he's accusing them of their wealth and their greed and their use of power. And so Micah gives us a picture of this corruption here in in Micah 2.2. He says, Alas, for those who devise wickedness and evil deeds on their beds. So this idea that once they wake up, they're ready to do it. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress householder and house people and their inheritance. So it sounds like they're taking things away from people that are rightfully theirs, and they're doing it because they have the power to do so. Goes on in chapter 3. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. What I notice here, though, is that God seems to be pretty concerned with not necessarily those who are breaking rules, but maybe those who are bending the rules for their benefit. He seems to be concerned with people in power bending the rules for their benefit, not the other way around. And the key word here is power. It's not just anyone, but specifically those who have control in a situation. And they're maybe intentionally using their power to to benefit themselves, to take what they want and what they need. Um, Or maybe it's even some people who are turning a a blind eye to the injustice that God seems to care a lot about. And if you think about our world, the really hard thing to come to terms with is that A lot of times, it is those who have experienced inequity, those who do not have power, that oftentimes end up in the most trouble. I want you to think about the foster care system for a second. And maybe some of you have grown up in the foster care system. Maybe some of you have actually fostered um, a child before. But did you know that um, 
90% of foster care kids who have more than five assignments end up in the criminal justice system. 90%. And when you think about it, it makes sense, right? The psychological damage, that inequity that they have experienced, it's hard not to imagine how the cycle repeats itself, right? And what's even harder is the fact that kids who end up in the juvenile hall system are actually more likely to eventually end up in the prison system. And this week I actually read a study by an MIT economist by the name of Joseph Doyle, who is just studying prison reform in general and the economic cost it has on us. And he found that those who, those kids who are incarcerated are 23 times more likely to end up in the prison system especially compared with maybe those who, um, by the grace of a lenient judge, avoided incarceration. And so basically put another way is 40% of, of young men and women who end up in the juvenile hall system end up in the prison system by the age of 25. It's almost half. That's, that should like wreck us. <laughs> And this is why the new restorative justice program is so powerful. It's this idea that you actually help a young adult see the impact of their actions on another person. They could see that they're not just thrown a punishment and, and thrown into the juvenile hall system. They're sat in front of their victim and they're able to actually hear and understand the impact of their actions on that person. It aims, at the end of the day, to try to get to the root of the problem, right? So I don't know if some of you probably know this, but I work at Azusa Pacific University. Um, and what I do there is I, I'm not a teacher, but I, I'm a, we're st we still call ourselves educators. But um, I work outside of the classroom in a co-curricular space. So essentially, I'm providing programs and services to students um, for some of their maybe co-curricular needs. Um, and so one of the things that I get to do is I meet with college students when they have broken our community expectations, which is a very fancy, flowery, higher education way of saying I meet with them when they get in trouble and they break the rules. So they have what is actually called a hearing with me, where I am to some extent a judge and an adjudicator at the same time and I make decisions about their future based off of the choices that they have made, um, usually not the best choices, um, that once again, their brains have not fully formed yet. It's like 25 when that happens, so you can imagine some of the things that I hear. Um, <laughs> but uh, part of what we do at APU is a restorative justice program, and the idea is, is that we hear a student out and then we engage in a, what tries to be uh, one of those redemptive, reconciling, reconciling type of conversations where we ask them why they have made the choices they have. And then we give them assignments like writing a written reflection on their experience, maybe actually apologizing to someone that they have done harm to. Or maybe it is uh, doing an educational model, uh, module online, or it might be getting a mentor, going to a counseling appointment, doing some community service. So the point is, is to be thoughtful about what we assign them, so to speak. Um, and what I find with most of these students is not that they have made these choices because they're just uh, trying to be rebellious or bad, but oftentimes they have a lot of other things going on. Maybe they um, are really struggling financially and can't pay for books, so they steal. 
Or maybe they uh, have a mom who's really sick and they have an enormous amount of stress on them and they got invited to a party and they drank too much to try to numb the pain. Or maybe they uh, are the first to go to college, they're a first generation college student and the expectations of the classroom are pretty heavy so they cheat on a paper. What I found is that just giving them unthoughtful punishments is like kicking someone when they're already down. So the goal is to try to create something that would be beneficial for them, that would help them make better choices. And I can tell you that it is some of the most rewarding work that I get to do. It's not always easy. Um, good thing I'm a rule follower, right? But <laughs> it's not always easy, but it is rewarding. So if we go back once again to Micah, right? We know that God is concerned with justice, uh, but this is the kind of justice that brings restoration to people, not harm. And as the book of Micah goes on, we hear the warnings of the prophet, and the prophet Micah is saying, hey, guess what? There's going to be these Assyrians and these Babylonians, and they're going to come, and they're going to capture uh, the, the nation of Israel. But even while he's warning them, the book of Micah is kind of exploring this tension between um, judgment but also hope, and the hope that this is not where the story ends. Um, God's judgment is never where the story ends. And so uh, I'm actually going to show us a video, uh, and it's from this great company called The Bible Project. And they, they put together, oh yeah, I heard a woo, good. Uh, they put together some really cool um, like uh, short synopsis of all the books of the Bible. I actually really recommend it for even maybe going through with some, some of, maybe if you have a high school student or a, a middle school student, it can be really, really um, fun because they have drawings. It's super cool. Um, I'm going to show you the, the end of the clip, uh, which is talking about the last couple chapters of Micah and kind of the end of the story, and especially in relation to this idea of mercy and um, justice. So you can go ahead and play that now. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, 
God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Thank you, Bible Project. That was my sermon. (laughs) But really, think about... um, The two types of mercy that we talked about in the beginning, God's character, the Rashem, that that motherly compassion, that love, and then God's chesed, the covenantal promise that he has. And ultimately, this, the fullness of God's mercy is restoration, it's hope. And, And we know that this idea that eventually there's this new Jerusalem where we find the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate reconciler. I want us to point to Micah 6, 8. Uh, I think that this is like a blueprint for us when we talk about mercy and about justice. And, And it says that the prophet reminds us that this is what God has required of us, and it's to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So that first thing, to seek justice, to maybe notice or be aware of inequity, Um, where there has been oppression, and to seek in our own spheres of influence to make a difference. It's also then to have our actions be filled with mercy, to be the kinds of people that forgive, that um, move towards compassion. And then finally, to be aware that we are not the heroes of this story. When I meet with a student and they choose a different path, Um, and they decide to change their actions, they're the hero of their story. God is the hero of their story. He has been the one that has redeemed them. I have just been a person to ask some good questions. Remember I told you at the beginning I'm a rule follower, and I embarrassed myself in front of all of you, and I'm sure that there's times when I've done those things, but I been really rare. I'm telling you, I'm such a rule follower. Um, But this week, as I was preparing, I kept asking myself the question, like, okay, when have I experienced mercy from people? When I've experienced mercy? And I was having a really hard time coming up with an example. And to be honest, it wrecked me. Hit me really hard. Oh, no. (laughs) Here we go with the tears. (laughs) Um, But it did. It wrecked me. because I couldn't think of a super strong example, and I realized, oh no, I've been, I've been trying to avoid punishment, but instead I've missed out on mercy. I don't want to do that anymore. It's about a year ago. Um, so see, God has been working on this for me for a while. I think he's been preparing me for this for a long time. Um, about a year ago, I had a really difficult falling out with a friend. It was very, very hard. Um, I intentionally, unintentionally, sorry, not intentionally, (laughs) unintentionally didn't follow all the right rules of the friendship and it broke. And if you know me, I like boundaries and rules because then I know what I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do. And um, the unfortunate reality of life is there's sometimes unwritten rules and unexpected things that we cannot predict and we will make mistakes and need mercy. And what's been hard about this is I've, I've asked for forgiveness from this friend, and she has offered a word of forgiveness, but there has not been reconciliation. And so, in a way, we have not experienced the fullness of mercy. 
And it's, it's hurt because, too, I, it's made me, like, a little bit fearful or anxious in other friendships. Like, oh, no, am I breaking the wrong rules in this one? What am I going to do? What if, what if this person also leaves me? But it was about a week ago, Jonathan was actually praying over me with this situation. And um, when he was done praying, he looked at me and he said, Rihanna, I want you to know that the Lord has promised you that there will one day be reconciliation, even if it is in heaven. And I want you to remember our beatitude phrase today. It was, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It is not a, you might receive mercy. Ah, if you do the right thing, then you'll receive mercy. It's just that you will receive it. The hard part about mercy is we don't always get to decide exactly how it comes or from who. And so um, all we can do is choose to be merciful ourselves. That's what it's asking us to do, to be merciful people. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I even I started to think about, oh my gosh, wait, remember that time someone showed me mercy? Or, or even in this circumstance, in this situation, I have seen friends show up for me and um, share, yeah, I've also had a falling out with a friend. You're not alone. Um, I've had uh, people that I have realized that I've hurt and, and they have not only forgiven but also wanted to reconcile. And I've seen the ways God has brought me comfort in even this loss. And and so I don't know what you fully needed. I don't know exactly what you needed to hear today. I think the Lord is probably all is stirring in each of us in different ways. Um, but what I want you to hear is, blessed are you who is merciful, for you will receive mercy. Mercy is yours right now today. And it may not always look exactly how we imagined, but God will give you mercy. Mercy.